the idea that because you are a certain gender or a certain color or a certain ethnicity or a certain religion or a certain this or that or you know whatever, that you can't do something is absolute garbage to me. If you want to do it, be honest with yourself, figure out what you know, what you don't know, and take the steps to bridge that gap. I mean, and don't let people tell you otherwise. Beyond the Bench, the podcast where we delve into stories of scientists and their work. Today, we are pleased to be talking with Chris Narayanan, who's an extension farm management specialist at the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture. So a little bit different than your average scientist, but you'll see through this conversation that his work definitely has to do with science in maybe more of a non-traditional way. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. And you have been a branch and rodeo cowboy, a Marine Corps infantry, and a Wall Street analyst and banker. So this is a lot of different hats that you've held throughout your career before you became an extension specialist. So tell us a bit about your path through these experiences. (laughs) Well, good morning, Madison. Thanks for having me. Um, I guess, you know, the easiest way to do it is, is, you know, Back in Texas, I grew up around the ranching industry, um, worked, uh, not my family, but a lot of my friends' families. So kind of did the work on ranches and kind of helped out where I could and just kind of fell in love with agriculture that way. Um, and uh, one of my bosses at one point uh, asked me if I ever thought about riding Bronx. And I was like, well, no, but I'll give anything a try. And that first rodeo cost him $30 and cost me about 0.35 seconds of my life before I got bucked <laughs> off and went tumbling, but I was hooked. Oh no! And so um, I just, you know, so I kept at it. Uh, I ended up being on the Texas A&M rodeo team, um, spent one year uh, in the PRCA, the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association, um, but uh, knew I was not going to make a career out of it. Um, I was actually already in the Marine Corps at the time I had switched over to the reserves. And so I decided to stick with the Marine Corps. Um, I don't know, maybe I thought it was going to be a little safer, <laughs> but, uh, um, but my love of agriculture never really left. So when I got out of the core, uh, completely, I intentionally, uh, went back to agriculture. I had a degree in agricultural economics, uh, from Texas A&M. I had picked up a master's in rangeland management as well. That was the scientific side of things, uh, and looking at things like grazing systems and, uh, sustainability and ecological restoration and that sort of stuff. Cool. So you got into ag economics and then why did you eventually decide to become an extension specialist? So uh, in my career, it took a lot of different turns. Um, I noticed I started off working for some consulting companies um, when I got out and then, uh, oh, probably in the mid 2000s, I saw that Wall Street was getting more and more into agriculture. And I was like, well, what do those boys know about it? Um, but with a couple of ag degrees, I didn't think I was going to take a get a very serious look. So I picked up my MBA on weekends. And uh, so I at that point, it was an intentional move to the Wall Street community. Um, so that was about 15 years, 13 years, I guess, 13, 14 years, uh, seven of which were actually in New York City, but uh, worked with some hedge funds, private equity firms, as well as some investment banks. And um Kind of rose, you know, kind of went through the ranks there and uh, was leading an agriculture commodity research team forecasting prices uh, for uh, 
uh, for uh, commercial entities, uh, the big grain companies, the traders, the food processors, that sort of stuff, as well as for, on the investment side. And I kind of got, I guess I got to a point where I'd kind of reached the peak of it. And I said, well, you know what, kind of getting burnt out, you know, I wanted to leave New York City and, you know, I'd been there seven years. I was like, well, it was a fun run, but it's definitely not where I want to be for the rest of my life. And uh, moved West Tennessee about four years ago. Um, of course, I got sucked right back into the Wall Street community for a few years, ran my own consulting company and investment banking firm. And then I got hired away by a company. Uh, and then earlier this year, I uh, made the transition to extension. And I think at that point, I wanted to take everything that I've learned over the years and said, hey, you know what? Let me bring it back to the farm level and uh, and take those lessons. And maybe I can show them some things that uh, most people uh, in traditional ag or extension uh, don't necessarily look at or even have the experience for. So I find that to be absolutely fascinating in the sense that I don't think it's often that you have an extension specialist or even an ag economist that has actually interfaced with Wall Street in that manner. I think that's super unique. And um, have you found that in the extension specialist position that when you interface with scientists, is there specific things that you think that you bring to the table with that experience that, that may not be every ag economist's uh, background. And yeah, just that, I, I just feel like that's so unique. Um, when I found you on Twitter, I was just like, oh my God, this is, this is so cool. This is somebody that's doing this ag economic stuff, but is, you know, I just never see those two things combined unless you're in sort of, you know, you're studying it from the academic sense, you know, um, in a basic economics course, they'll talk about ag commodities, but when people think Wall Street, I don't really think they're thinking about commodities. And I think how that interfaces with, especially how a business that is in the agricultural commodities, how they market their stuff. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Because this is this is the interface of that. Well, I think the industry has changed, uh, certainly in my lifetime. Um, so, for example, let's just say the Brazilian economy is not doing very well. And so now the interest rates are rising because the risk of investment there is greater. So investors want greater return. That's going to devalue their currency in turn. Uh, so the real is now going to start uh, getting weaker relative to the dollar and maybe other currencies. But because soybeans globally are priced in U.S. dollars, then they're getting more rei per dollar that they're turning into. So they're actually getting more of their own currency. So they can actually make more money, everything else being equal by planting more soybeans. Now that in turn will increase the amount of soybeans on the global market and at being a tradable commodity, all of a sudden now people have more choice. There's maybe cheaper origins that they can source it from. And so all of a sudden US exports are not as uh, palatable because they can get cheaper in Brazil. And so you, you put all these different links that you put together um, is that's I think a good example of what I'm trying to do now um, you asked about the scientists, and I think that's, you know, in, I mean, in the four months that I've been with Extension, I started on July 1st, um, but so far it has been a very interesting um, transition because, you know, I think people are, are one kind of enamored or at least curious about my background because it's not a traditional academic background by any means. Um, two, you know, there's probably some skeptics there too. It's like, well, you know, 
this is, you know, that's, that's, this is not wall street. So, you know, we're going to have to do things our way and other, and then I guess the third bucket would just be people like, let's talk. I want to learn and maybe I can teach you. And so I had a conversation with a couple of folks, uh, one economist, one scientist, um, uh, plant scientist, uh, and over the last couple of weeks on regenerative agriculture. I mean, that's definitely a hot topic right now, looking at diversifying your operation, uh, using less so, uh, inputs on the soil, less fertilizer, less chemicals, uh, having a biomass that's diverse enough where it's a symbiotic relationship. Uh, and my question is, has anybody looked at the economics of it? Because we have, you know, there are stories. Uh, there's a book that I read recently, Dirt to Soil by Gabe Brown, a uh, farmer up in North Dakota that has been very successful. Now, he's also been uh, in the right place at the right time. He's got a lot of help. Uh, but my, you know, my question is, can that be replicated? And or is it a one and done kind of a deal? So let's study at the economics. So we from the scientific plant pot, you know, pathology and all that, we could certainly make the case that this is something that's worth looking into. But people have to eat. People have to pay their bills. You know, it's not just farmers, you know, and farmers markets and things like that can only go so far. Can we scale this up uh, economically to make it more um, approachable by other producers? And then maybe all of a sudden say, hey, you know what? you guys are not going to lose money doing this. And you'll actually not only, you know, sustain your farm for the next generation and generations to come, but, you know, you're not going to go broke doing that, you know? So that kind of study, I would love to be able to put together. Yeah. I think that, you know, in terms of moving agriculture to some of these next generation ideas, I think it always comes down to that dollar, right? You know, how way more than, uh, selling somebody on the ecological benefits, you know, how it benefits their operation from an economic standpoint, because I think people sometimes can forget that it is a business, right? You have, people have to make a living off of it to do it. They're not just going to do it out of the kindness of their heart. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, So it's just, you know, and being a scientist and sort of on the other side of things, I've always known the importance of having an economist on grants where you're proposing uh, new techniques but I guess those economists always seem to be uh, so much more academic. And that's why when I saw you, know, you on Twitter, I was just like, whoa, like, that's like basically boots on the ground experience looking at, because this, these commodities are gonna change eventually, right? You're gonna have you know, your lab grown meats, you're gonna have uh, you know, this more diversified market where you're having a different type of agriculture grown in a different manner. And I think it might be essential to understand how that would play in a broader market um, because it's going to be hard, I think, for the scientists also to interface with that because do you focus on, you know, land grown stuff or do you focus on next generation production methods and what has the most influence? And another question I have based on what you said is that, you know, you said that soybeans trade in the dollar. So how long is it until soybeans are traded in like Bitcoin? You know, what, what, what is, what's, what's hold, what's the dollar, how is the dollar holding as the main currency that these trading is occurring in? And does that give the United States an advantage? I'll answer that last one first. I don't know that it necessarily gives the U.S. an advantage more than it's just kind of, we, you know, the U.S. was the country that, you know, came, you know, was one of the big countries, you know, that really over the last hundred years uh, took hold of commodity markets. 
um, and, and set up the infrastructure. You know, and certainly, you know, you can go back to the 1600s, the tulips in the, in, in the Netherlands and, you know, all that. And so commodities have been around for centuries. But I think at this level of organization, I think it's just kind of a first mover advantage more than anything else. Um, as far as U.S. dollar being the reserve currency of the world, you know, obviously there's a lot of people looking at Bitcoin and just uh, cryptocurrency in general, uh, blockchain and all that. And blockchain is a lot bigger than just cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency is a lot bigger than uh, Bitcoin. But the point is, I mean, there's always going to be way- people out there trying to find better ways, more efficient ways. And in a semi-cynical way of looking at things, people are going to try to find ways to take control of things. So, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So, you know, what that necessity is, is going to be, is going to be different from person to person. Right. But I don't know that that's going to change in the foreseeable future. Now in my lifetime, could it change? Probably, you know, I mean, I'm about halfway through my life, I suppose, you know, if you look at uh, longevity tables and all that kind of stuff. So there's a lot could happen between now and then. Um, and certainly, you know, we've seen um, a lot of this movement, but you know, a lot of this stuff is continuing to, you know, get developed. Uh, there was an article today that I read uh, actually here in Tennessee, the university of Tennessee is working on jet fuel, renewable jet fuel using biomass and legumes and all that oil seeds and all that kind of stuff. Now this isn't anything new. It's been going on for decades but maybe now we'll find something to make it economic, going back to your earlier point, making it economically viable. You know, there's nothing wrong with renewable fuels as long as you can scale it up to the point where it makes sense, right? Or maybe it's not a one size fits all, right? And so if you're sticking with the term of renewables, solar energy in Phoenix makes perfect sense. Wind energy in West Texas or Martha's, off of Martha's Vineyards in Massachusetts makes sense. Corn ethanol or, or biodiesel makes sense in the Midwest. You think about where these, uh, where the infrastructure is, you know, it makes sense. It doesn't have to be one, you know, you know, just one for everybody. No, I don't believe that to be the case. And I think that's really, I hope, or at least I hope to see that we can have complementary industries that solve a collective problem over time. Yeah, I find all of that super fascinating. So you said you just started in July, correct? Correct. So have you had a chance to really start interfacing with the scientists at uh, UT and and understanding of what they're doing and, and how has that been? I mean, because I imagine, you know, you grew up in Texas, but then you went to New York. And then so what West Tennessee should be less of a culture shock than New York was, right? <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, I mean, on my, you know, short time that I've been here, um, it's more me learning than them, you know, instructing, if that makes sense. In other words, like I'll, I'll tag along on field days and and uh, the different departments have their in-service meetings. And of course, with COVID, things are a little bit different. So it was also kind of weird joining an organization during these kinds of times where like I have not been in Knoxville yet because really there's no need to for one, and two, because of the restrictions of travel and everything else, it makes it a little bit more difficult. But with me being assigned to the Western region um, and Tennessee's uh, broken into what they call the Grand Division. So you have the Eastern side, the Central, and our Middle Tennessee, and then you've got uh, the Western side. So in the Western region, um, we have our own experiment station here um, about an hour away from where I'm at, um, where we've had in-service meetings when we can. Sometimes it's out in the field and sometimes it's online. Uh, like you know, over a Zoom call or something. 
And so I've had probably not as much exposure as I would have in a non-COVID world. Uh, but certainly, you know, talking to some of the uh, uh, agronomists, talking to some of the animal scientists, you know, I've had some exposure already and they're at least, they know who I am now. And I'm still kind of learning like whose research focus is what. And so as and when I kind of come across these needs that I see, um, I can uh, uh, certainly ha have a better idea of who to approach. But then that's where the county extension agents come in because they're the, they truly are the boots on the ground. I mean, I'm covering 15 counties right now, but each one of them has their own county director. Each one of them has at least one, if not two, ag and natural resource natural resource agents. Um, and so I can say, hey, look, you know, I've got a producer that I talked to that in your county. You know, they're asking about this. Who do I talk to? Or do you know something about that? And so it's probably a little bit more fits and starts than it would be under a normal year. Um, but it's been good so far. And uh, and that's certainly something I like to learn. So, you know, hopefully that's something, not that I'm ever going to become a plant pathologist, but if I can learn more, uh, at least at a, at a high level, because that could help me with my financial analysis of their operations and say, hey, have you considered this? Let me put you in touch with so-and-so that can talk you through the science behind this. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that would maybe be a critical thing for those labs, even as a sort of funding source, potentially, if somebody finds something promising. And I don't think academia has good connections there. Some, some departments do, like particularly engineering departments tend to interface a lot with businesses. Um, and I do too, to some degree. Uh, it's just how much time do I have to test? It's kind of making a decision between, you know, do you test the new chemical that's coming from a BASF or a Bayer, or do you focus on a more small label product? Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to decide where to put your time, I think, when it comes to interfacing with companies, because there's so much potential. Um, so I guess, you know, you've studied economics now, basically in that boots on the ground fashion where you're actually doing it. And so would you say economics is itself a science? Is it an art? Um, how do you really study economics to learn how to understand or predict markets or those interactions? Because, you know, at least from the academic side, I feel like you're learning theory, but that might not always play out in practice, just like in science. So the short answer is yes, it's an art and it's a science. Um, and I think, you know, when you think about, you know, I guess we could talk about chemical reactions, you know, we could talk about the laws of physics, um, we could talk about biological processes, but just like in those hard sciences, in the social sciences like economics, you know, there's still a lot of a fair bit of mathematics and statistics and the analytical tools that you use you know, they might have their own nuances, but there is some commonality there. And so I think it is fair to say that economics is a social science. Um, it, it does pervade in what we do in, in the decision-making process and everything else. Um, but it, there, is, there is an art of it, and that might be the more qualitative side. Um, I, I don't know how many times where, you know, especially being an ag economist, you know, when I was working, I worked for a, uh, two investment banks in New York, uh, three total, but um, the second one that I was where I was running the ag research over there, um, we had uh, what they call quantitative analysts, quants, that would try to come up with these commodity trading ind indices. So, you know, it might be ag focused, it might be grain focused, it could be total commodities, you know, whatever it is. And say, hey, Chris, we found this relationship between 
cattle and whatever, you know, can you talk, you know, does this make sense? Can we trade on it? And that's where the art comes in because you have to understand the industry, the underlying and say, okay, for example, and where, and where I'm going with this, there's a correlation between ice cream sales and swimming pool deaths. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense, right? When do you eat ice cream most in the summer? When do you swim the most in the summer? So there is a correlation. Now, is there a causation? No. You know, just because you eat ice cream doesn't mean you're going to die in a swimming pool. But the fact that they happen at the same time of the year, or there's a you know a greater incidence of it happening, you can see a correlation, but not a causation. And I think that's where the art form comes in. It's like you, models are always a good guide. And I think that's, I would think that's the same in, in, in the hard sciences too. You know, you have your, you know, empirical data and everything else, but you also have to kind of apply some common sense to it. Does this make sense? Or are we seeing something because we want to see it, right? And I think that, you know, when you when you put it all together is what makes economics just as challenging or just as fascinating in my sense, you know, um, versus you know, any of the other sciences. And then if you take it one step further, where, you know, all right, from an economical standpoint, this, you know, an irrational market, this is what's going to happen. Well, people are not rational. Why? Because they have emotion. And that's where, you know, sub-studies like behavioral economics, behavioral finance has become more and more into the forefront because why don't, you know, like uh, like Keynes said, Keynes said back in the day, you know, markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Well, that's because, you know, people aren't always going to do what makes sense, at least from a logical standpoint, because there is that human emotion. And I think that's, you know, and, and there's another commonality that I see between that and, you know, any of the hard sciences or most fields of study for that matter. So basically, you know, really my first introduction to ag economics was really in a basic economics class. So why, you know, based on what you're saying, why is it that ag commodities seem to be used as examples in basic economics versus something like an iPhone? I think really because it's the clo- one of the closest things to a um, efficient market, as you can see, you know, where the laws of supply and demand are still very visible. Um, I mean, it's stuff, it's stuff that comes out of the ground, you know, once a year, you have to ration that supply for 12 months. Um, and then you have to look at the interconnectedness of other places. So for example, South America is planting when the, when North America is harvesting and vice versa. Right. So being able to make those links and and understanding the global trade flow. Um, I think it just now no market is, is perfect, but it's, you know, if you think about what, in basic economics, when I talk about a perfect market where everybody has the same information and everything else. I think agriculture commodities are the closest or one of the closest that you'll see in the real world. Because again, economic theory and economic reality are not necessarily the same. So I'm not going to pretend that uh, agriculture markets are perfect by any means. It's perfect in the sense of a textbook definition of perfect. Um, but certainly there are qualities of those markets that are closer to that textbook definition in some other markets. So based on that, what, what do you think is the biggest influence on ag markets? Is that just, you know, I mean, obviously weather has an effect. Um, I'd argue that's the, that's the biggest one. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because you, as much as you try to, I mean, look, meteorology is a science as well. Right. And, you know, I, I like the joke that meteorologists and economists are the only two professions where you can be wrong and still get paid. 
not get fired <laughs> because it's not, it's because, I mean, because there are certain things that are left to chance that you just, like I said, you can't model everything. You can have guides, you can get better at it. You can make rational or at least educated, you know, assessments and predictions, but there's always going to be something out there that's going to you know mess it up. That's something in agriculture is going to be weather, you know, um, and whether, you know, you believe that the climate has been changing for, you know, centuries or over the last 200 years, the industrial revolution has accelerated that change, or you believe somewhere in between weather changes, weather patterns change. You know, I live here in West Tennessee and there's been plenty of times when we were expecting a storm, but because of the Mississippi river and the interactions of the cold front with the river has kind of like sends the, uh, the weather system off kilter, or, you know, changes course or something like that. And we, we don't get the weather that we were promised, whether that's good or bad. Sometimes it's a good thing. Sometimes it's a bad thing. Um, but you have these interactions. And I think, you know, we just haven't as a society, we're not there yet when it comes to, we've gotten a lot better than we were a hundred years ago, no doubt, just like we have in a lot of things, but certainly weather is still playing that big role because there's only so much that we can predict accurately. So as a farm management specialist, can you talk about some of the ways in which you specifically help families that do farming or larger agricultural operatives in West Tennessee? And what exactly goes into that aspect of your job? So our, my, my title is a bit of a misnomer. Um, well, I guess it depends on how you look at it. So my role is on the financial and economic side. You know, I'm not going to tell them when to spray what or, you know, we have agronomists that can help them with that. Um, I can help them, you know, during calving season, you know, but I'm not going to be the one that's going to be, you know, doing the AI or the ET form, you know, they have specialists do that. So my role really is on that financial managing it as an operation, as a business. Um, and so, you know, our, our clients are kind of in a few buckets. One is beginning farmers. Um, it could be a traditional row crop enterprise. Maybe the kid inherits it and has been working in town for, you know, in, our, in the cities for a while and fathers, you know, and mother are not doing so well. So they come home to take over the farm. They grew up on it, but they've been so removed. They need a refresher on how to do that. Uh, another one might be struggling, you know, where they, for whatever reason, maybe they're just too much debt. Uh, the yields have been coming down. They've, they're talking to our, um, our soil scientists and whatnot to help them boost their yields. But they're also trying to figure out, you know, how to diversify their operation or maybe make changes to their operation from a financial standpoint or even from an operate, you know, enterprise standpoint that makes better economic sense. Maybe because, you know, for whatever reason, the downturn in crop prices hit them harder than some somebody else. Well, another one might be uh, small rural agribusinesses. You know, it could be, you know, help them with business plans. You know, maybe they're just they're a startup type of, you know, and they just want to know, like, okay, how do I set myself up for success? Um, and the last bucket would just be like, I guess, financial health checks. You know, what does my balance sheet look like? What does my income statement look like? What's you know, net worth, cash flows, um, my debt to equity ratios and, you know, my overall financial health. Am I in a good place? Can I be doing better? Um, am I approaching or in a danger zone? Um from a financial standpoint. So, you know, basically, I guess at the end of the day, if you had to wrap it all up, we're, we're kind of like, we act as financial advisors uh, to the farmers in, in, in my team um, and helping them uh, basically help to maintain and hopefully grow their operations. And, and then if they want to try something different, help them uh, run the numbers, the cost benefit analysis and whatnot. 
Man, it's so interesting. And it's really different work than a lot of the extension specialists that I've met. Yeah, I just think that that is fascinating um, that you can sort of have this intersection of science and economics and have such an impact on people. So you mentioned that you started your own investment banking firm. Are you still managing that? And can you talk about sort of why you started that recently and what the function of it is? I started off an investment banking firm a couple of years ago because I saw a hole um, in the or underserved community within agriculture where you had, you know, the big, you know, the big guys, John Deere and, you know, Cargill and Bungie, you know, they, there's no shortage of investment bankers wanting, wanting their business. Um, and then you had the, you know, smaller guys that were just, you know, too small for that level. They might, you know, they don't, they just need somebody to help them with a business plan or something like that. But you had that middle market, that, you know, we're small to mid-sized companies that, you know, are starting to grow and they're looking, you know, they need capital. They're you know, or maybe looking at being acquired or acquiring other companies. And I saw what I saw was a very underserved community. And so that was the kind of uh, the reason why I started that. Um, got noticed. And then I got, like I said, I got hired away. So I had to shut down my firm because I was now working for somebody else. You know, so there's no conflicts of interest. And of course, now that I'm at extension, you know, that's still closed. It's, you know, it's no longer in business. Um, But a lot of those same lessons that I learned and applied is what I try to bring, you know, as extension. And it kind of goes back to what we said earlier about, you know, having come from industry and seeing and experiencing things that a lot of people in extension traditionally have not. You know, hopefully I can lend a different perspective um, and help uh, and ultimately help our farmers and ranchers uh, understand better how markets work and that and show them that they actually have a lot more knowledge and uh, tools than they think that they do. Yeah, well, it sounds like you'll be super valuable in those ways in your current position. So you've been this sort of entrepreneur. Besides hard work, what would you say are the things needed to be a successful entrepreneur? <sighs> That's a great question. Um, well, one, uh, make sure you have the knowledge base. Um, and if you, and, but when you do also realize that you don't know everything and there's always something more, um, that you can learn. I mean, here I am, you know, and I'm still reading books, you know, probably on the order of two to three books a month, um, on professional development of some sort. Um, it could be something that's very light and easy read, or it could be something that's a lot more involved where I'm learning new skills or maybe, getting at some advanced knowledge and, and a skill that I already know uh, or something in between. So I think part of this never just, you know, you know what you know, but you also should know what you don't know. Um, and then, um, and, and, and take steps to continue to improve yourself. Um, if you're going to start a business, don't skimp on marketing. That was a mistake that I made early on, you know, just because people know who you are, doesn't mean everybody knows who you are. And that doesn't mean that the people that know you are necessarily going to be your first customers. There might be people that, that they might know you and serve as references, um, but they may not have a need for you or they might have somebody else already. So I think, you know, marketing is something that people don't want to spend money on. It is expensive, um, but you have to be honest with, and it also depends on your geographic reach and, 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 and your contact list and stuff like that. But, you know, trying to do marketing on, on the cheap, you know, I can build a website, you know, on Squarespace by myself. Is that going to look as good as having somebody professionally doing it? No, probably not. Unless you have a graphic artist kind of graphic design background, you know, and then if you do, then that's fine. And, and the point is taking inventory of, 
the skill sets that you do have, as well as what you don't have. And not just in terms of doing your day-to-day job, but all the other stuff that goes along with it. Um, And then being able to either find the time um, to learn or having the money to be able to hire somebody and knowing when to do, when it's better to hire somebody versus doing it yourself. And I think a lot of people are, especially when you're starting out, look, I want to save money. I have a long runway and it's going to take a long time before I get there. And that's true. But at the same time, you don't want to cost yourself more money in the long run by skimping. And so I think you just have to, I think the the biggest skill or the, uh, the biggest thing that you need to be successful is truly to be honest with yourself. Man. So you mentioned that you read a lot of professional development books, and this is something that I also genuinely enjoy. Do you have a favorite or maybe a top three that you think really good you know, idea to read? You know, people ask me that all the time and I have sent them, I guess my, my question on that would be for what, because it kind of go back what we were saying about renewables. I don't believe in one size fits all. So there's no one book I think um, that I, that will encapsulate everything. Now I say that Sun Tzu's art of war um, was always a favorite read of mine. And I read that at least once a year. Uh, I know in the eighties, it got a lot of bad press because you had the leverage buyouts, Nabisco and, and, and the, and the barbarians of the gates and, you know, all these horror stories of wall street, you know, misapplying it. But I think for a critical uh, thinker um, understanding how the human mind works and how people um, operate I think there's lessons there that can be learned in warfighting as well as in the business world or just dealing with people. And it doesn't necessarily have to be nefarious. It's just understanding what makes people think. So, so uh, I guess, you know, our audience would probably be looking for something that's like a leadership book. Um, I think those are general principles that can be applied across any dimension. And obviously people have a lot of different opinions on how to go about <laughs> see uh i'm looking back you know at at, uh, our main bookcase is downstairs but on leadership i mean i think the the biggest one that i've read recently um is team of teams um now it was you know written by an army general and um and certainly uh there is that bent to it but i think it's good advice for other people and it, it really deals with you know like the name suggests team of teams how to manage um, being a team member as well as managing teams um, and then interacting with other teams, right? And because if you think about how connected uh, the world is today, you know, and, you know, you know, here's, you know, you have people that are in different offices around the state or different states or even in different countries, all on different, uh, on, you know, on platforms like Zoom or Microsoft Teams, and they're able to communicate. And they may not be able to see each other every day. They don't have that, you know, personal connection in the in the same office all the time. But they are relying on each other. And I think anything that you can do to learn how to um, kind of not just function as a team member, but as a team leader, and then being able to reach across to other teams to be able to have the interconnectedness will definitely be helpful for any skill, whether you're in academia, science, or business, or anything else. So this is not a question that's on the list and we don't have to include it. We do have one last question, but this is just something that I have to ask. So you grew up in Texas, you went to New York city, you're back in West Tennessee. 
you're not, I did my master's at NC state. So that to me was my big culture shock. I'm originally from, from Delaware and I had never lived in the, in the South. Um, you're not the typical white guy in ag. (laughs) (laughs) No. So like, what has that experience been like and how, you know, that was the other thing when I saw your Twitter, I was like, this is, this is America right here, right? This is a guy who's doing stuff in West Tennessee. He's been in wall street. He's doing all these things, but he's not how people would profile those activities. And so what has your experience been? And yeah, I'm just fascinated by that. Yeah. I'll, I'll answer that. I have a problem with that. Um, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll start with saying that people have always tried to put me in a box and limit me um, throughout my life. Um, I just say, all right, do what you got to do, but I'm I'm just going to go do this whether you like it or not. There's really nothing you can do to stop me. Um, But honestly, if I'm being honest, I've never had any pushback from people in agriculture. It's always the people outside of agriculture that want to make a big deal out of it. The the folks that are in agriculture, all right, let's see what you can do. Just let's just do it, you know. And when, whether we're preg checking cows or you know sitting at a kitchen table, you know, putting together a farm budget, you know, they're happy. You know, they're you know they're they're good folks, and they're just they just want to be helped. It's it's the people that are at, outside of ag. They're like, how did you you know how how does a guy like you do? I'm like, well, if you want something, you're just going to go and do it. I guess I don't, I guess I never saw it as a big deal. Um, for me, it was never because. You know, how do I say this in a semi-politically correct way? Um, I want to, you know, I, I am who I am. I, 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 you know, I've got my talents and my interests and everything else. And I believe the good Lord put that in me. And the best thing I can do is use those skills for, for good. And so I never, I've, I don't know, for whatever reason, I never stopped saying, well, you're the only one that looks like you that's doing this. It was never an issue in my mind. It was more, this is what I want to do. I'm pretty good at it. And so I'm going to learn how to get better at it and, and just build a career. And I ended up building a career out of it. So are your parents uh, immigrants or what was your sort of family? So, yeah, so I am the son and grandson of immigrants. Um, And so, but you know, we, we bounced around a lot. I mean, Tennessee is now the seventh state that I lived in in my life. Um, And um, but uh, no, it was just, like I said, you know, you had a, you know, you know, kid had a, you know, had a glimpse of it and fell in love with it and worked towards it. I mean, it's, it's, it's that simple. It's not, you know, what are people going to think or, you know, am I, you know, am I going to be accepted or anything? Because like I said, the people that really mattered accepted me with no problem. And the people that really matter are the people that I'm working with in agriculture. It's the people that were, you know, in the cities in New York city or, Chicago when I lived there, you know, you know, how does a guy like you? And I'm like, I don't know. I just did it. And it just blew their mind and probably made them a little skeptical. And, you know, you always get the snide remarks and I'm just like, yeah, well, I'm just going to go back to the folk that I'm going to be helping with because we've got things to do and they don't really care. I don't really care. So why should you care? Yeah. I mean, I really relate to that a lot. I've had a very similar experience, you know, like I said, you know, going to North Carolina and I was working on tobacco and that's like a super tight knit group of growers. And I always just had such a good experience working with those growers when 
their reputation maybe be a little bit more uh, not accepting of women or maybe, you know, would look at me as if I'm different, but I never had that experience. So it's almost, you know, maybe academia seems to have more of a thought pattern around these things than say your everyday person that you're going to interface with. So, yeah, I just, I relate completely to what you're saying. And I just think that, I don't know, it's, it's cool to see people out there really living it, you know, not, not talking about it and just being the person who's different in the group and just whatever, who cares, let's go do like what we plan to do here. This isn't an issue. Uh, It's just refreshing, I think, especially with a lot of the more recent conversations that you see on the internet. And there's just a lot around identity and it just can be sometimes onerous, I think. (laughs) You know, and I'm going to address that, you know, and and so this is my way of getting a little controversial. I don't know how controversial you normally get on your podcast, but uh, this whole, you know, whether you want to call it identity politics or just identity, you know, roles or, you know, whatever you want to call it, the idea that because you are a certain gender or a certain color or a certain ethnicity or a certain religion or a certain this or that, or, you know, you're, you know, you're from Delaware or, you know, whatever that you can't do something is absolute garbage to me. If you want to do it, you know, it goes back to being a, you know, an entrepreneur, you know, successful entrepreneur, be honest with yourself, figure out what you know, what you don't know and take the steps to bridge that gap. If that's something you really want to do. Right. I mean, and don't let people tell you otherwise. Um, you know, I certainly never did. Um, but it, it just irks me when people say, well, you know, you have to be this or you have to be that. And it's like, you know, you know, some of the most, you know, as divided as this country is, I work with the same people that roughly half these half the country looks down on. And yet the people that I work with are the most accepting and warm and, you know, just good people that I've ever met. They're just happy that somebody's there to help them. And they're willing to show me, you know, if I don't know something, hey, let me let me show you how to do this, you know. And then we and, we, and it truly becomes a partnership and we learn from each other. You know, nobody's ever said, well, you know, what does this mean? Or, you know, what 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 brought you? No, they're just happy that there's people out there that want to do the work and, you know, that are, are willing to uh, and, and are, are there to help. And so, yeah, I just don't understand people that try to bucket people based on some arbitrary or genetic or whatever, or a regional kind of uh, uh, metric. Yeah. I mean, I a hundred percent agree. And I've had that same experience, especially in ag and working with, with growers. And I think you're right that it's, it's not really the people we're working with that are having this. And the other thing is, is that, yeah, I mean, I, I respect that people have different experiences and that stuff is hard, right? You always have some naysayers or people that doubt you and, treat you differently. That's just a reality. Um, fitting in completely probably is an illusion, right? You know, there's going to be no, just like any person you talk to, there's no one that you're going to agree with hundred percent of the time, right? You just need to learn how to work through those differences. But yeah, I don't know. I just, I mad respect to you basically, because I, I see that. And I'm like, that's, that's inspirational for me too, is just like, let's get on with it. Let's do what we're we're here to do and not focus on these things, you know, despite being, you know, different when people are looking from the outside in. And a lot of times it's not even the people on the inside making a big deal about that. It's the outside looking in. Right. 
So we have one final question for you, um, and that's really what advice do you have for students who are interested in pursuing a career in ag economics? You know, I think part of that, you know, what you've just talked about, I think in some ways is, is great advice. Don't be, you know, you don't need to come from a farm to do that necessarily, correct? Right. No, I mean, look, I, I, I got my hands dirty, you know, helping other people out, right? It wasn't our family ranch, but it, but it was friends, you know, our friends or just jobs that I had, you know, over time. And, you know, because I wanted to learn how to do the work and I wasn't afraid of it. So I guess first piece of advice is don't be afraid of hard work. Don't be afraid to get your hands dirty. Number two, don't be, or don't be afraid of what other people think. It doesn't really matter what they think. If you're willing to put in the work, that's all that really matters because um, you'll end up uh, proving them wrong in the end um, because you will, actually accomplish something three especially at the bachelor's level to the extent possible take as wide of a range of electives as you can and i don't just mean well i want to take not just ag econ but maybe a finance class or marketing class or whatever. those are important yes take a philosophy class take psychology take um you know don't do the bare minimum in sciences you know Pick one that you really like and, you know, and, 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 and run with it. Um, get out of your comfort zone a little bit. You know, take a beef cattle class or a soil science class, um, a history class. I mean, some of that stuff is going to be required anyway. But when you have your electives, you know, be mindful of that because the world is so interconnected. You know, you want to be able to uh, uh, have a broad you know, sense. And if you end up staying, sticking around for grad school, then you can specialize because that's what grad school is for. Master's degrees, in my opinion, is to give you a solid footing, but also that's somewhat broad, you know, and if you go off into the workforce and you do that for a couple of years and then decide to come back for a graduate degree, you can bring, you can bolt on that experience as well. Um, so, and then the last thing is don't stop learning. I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm in, I'll say it, I'm 46 and I'm still buying textbooks because, you know, I, there's things that I still want to learn. And, it doesn't make sense for me to take a whole class or go back to school at this point. You know, maybe one day I'll do a PhD. I don't know. But for now I can, you know, find things where I can fill in the gaps and say, okay, you know what? I really need a bone up on advanced econometrics or something like that. You know, something that I never had, but I have enough of a background that I could probably teach myself out of a book um, or I want to read team of teams and, and, and how to be, you know, a better contributor and a better leader. Um, even though I've had experience doing both, you know, from my time in the Marines and time in industry and everything else, there's always, but you can always get better. And so I guess the last piece is on that is don't rest on your laurels because there's always going to be something more that you can do. And as long as you're constantly willing to improve yourself um, in, in the Marine Corps, we have a lot of, we have 11 leadership principles, one of which is know yourself and seek self-improvement. And that's the one that sticks out to me the most because I try to continue to grow over time and that might be learning a new skill. It might be getting more advanced in an existing skill, or it might be completely out of my comfort zone and just being exposed to something or talking to folks that cover something that's related to me, but something I know nothing about and then trying to figure out how to uh, create a link between the two. I think that's solid advice and really inspiring too. Personally, I think it's easy to sort of get into a niche in my PhD and get like such tunnel vision that this is a good reminder to be constantly sort of learning um, 
tangential skills that I want to eventually bring into my career. Um, yeah. And I think that sometimes you just need a reminder to do that. So yeah, but this has just been a fascinating conversation. I've mostly just been listening in here as you two have been talking, but I mean, it's fascinating for me. And I know Monique was really excited to talk to you uh, about all the ag econ stuff. So um, yeah, just thank you so much for spending your time with us today, Chris. Pleasure. Appreciate you all having me. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Bench, a production from SciComm at UCR. This podcast is supported by Science for Citrus Health and the UC Riverside Graduate Student Association. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SciComm UCR.